Hi everyone, welcome to GradCast, the official radio show of the graduate students here at Western Ontario. I'm your host, Yusuf, and I'm joined here with Elizabeth. Hi. Uh, cool, and we have as our guest, Kendra Cotton, who is a recent graduate. She just began her master's in nursing. So welcome to our show, Kendra. Yeah, hi, thank you. Happy to be here. Awesome. So Kendra, tell us a bit about yourself, and uh, I guess we would like to know more about your nursing background. Okay, so I graduated from Western's nursing program back in 2019, which wasn't that long ago. And then I took the summer off, traveled a bit, came back, studied for my nursing license, and I got it in August. And I started my Master's of Science in Nursing at Western in uh, September of 2019. And I've been working on that for just over a year now. Wow. So you've been very busy. It's been, it's been busy. And so that's a thesis based masters. And I did a year of courses and now I'm starting to get rolling on a thesis. So tell us a little bit about, you mentioned courses, you mentioned thesis, tell us a bit about the courses and tell us about your thesis. So the courses were foundational research courses and my thesis is stemming in long-term care. So I started off my own nursing career in long-term care. I was a PSW and I started that in my first year of nursing school and I got on the floor and I started working with these long-term care residents and I found that it was a really difficult job. I saw a lot of a lot of burnout and a lot of complex care issues. I mean Ontario's long-term care system is caring for 100,000 residents and up to 90% of them are experiencing some level of cognitive impairment, and they have really complex healthcare issues. So being a PSW was a great experience, and that really led me as a graduate student, as a researcher, to want to explore those issues within long-term care even more. Wow, that that's exciting. Yeah. And I was wondering, how has COVID-19 impacted your research or your interests as well? I imagine um things would be even more complex now so uh, as COVID hit i was starting to formulate my research ideas i was coming to the end of my coursework and i i knew that i had my own struggles in long-term care as an unregulated healthcare professional and now as a nurse and a, as a future researcher i i was horrified by what i was seeing coming out from the military in long-term care the COVID cases in long-term care and that really motivated me to to focus my research on understanding what is going on in long-term care and and how can we make some changes there to improve the care for, for mostly elderly Canadians who've carried our own generations to where we are and we really want to provide them with the best care possible. And that's you know very timely and relevant research and I'm just wondering, it sounds like it's um, early days, but what are you, what are you finding so far? What do you think is needed around long-term care? It's a very hot button topic and certainly turn on the radio or TV and it's likely to come up. It, it is a really hot topic right now. And what I've been really interested in ever since I came into graduate studies was this idea of technology and of information flow. And so I've decided to focus my own research on health information exchange, which is a concept that is described a couple different ways. You can describe it as an action, as a verb. Healthcare professionals, regulated and unregulated, are sharing information with one another. 
And it can also should be described as a noun and that it's a thing that these providers are engaging in, actively engaging in social, technological, paper, formal and informal information sharing processes among one another. And they're trying to coordinate this complex puzzle of care for these long-term care residents. Because like I said, up to 90% of them experience cognitive impairment on top of other chronic diseases and their healthcare needs are quite complex. It requires a high level of coordination amongst a wide variety of professionals. So, so are you doing um, your research on sort of effective communication between health professionals so that adequate care is provided in a timely manner to patients? So it's a, it's called a workflow analysis and it, it's by Canada Health InfoWay, which is a non-for-profit organization um, established in 2001, they had a mandate to, to develop electronic health information tools, technologies across Canada, and they've been working on that since 2001. So they developed this methodology for this study, and it's called a workflow analysis. And the whole point of this is to map their workflow so they can identify opportunities for improvement, especially improvement surrounding electronic communication. I see. Well, well can you elaborate? A bit more on electronic communication, why it's so important. So electronic communication is, is a contemporary driving force in healthcare. I mean, it's growing. We're using it more and more. We're, we're walking away from paper-based charts and we're finding it useful because we can share information to the right healthcare provider at the point of care when they need that information to do their job. So it's an issue if you don't have the information that you need to do your job. And this, this electronic tool is, is a phenomenal way to make sure that that information is seamless. But long-term care is the slowest sector to develop these technologies and to adopt these technologies because they do require a high level of adoption, right? It's, it's not just a technology tool. You're embedding this into a social and paper-based information processes like it's it's a complex web mm. of how information is getting shared across these these healthcare providers and i'm wondering how in terms of the information and something i want to cycle kind of cycle back to you mentioned that people in ltc often have complex needs so how do you how could you maybe see having complex needs or cognitive impairment presents more challenges to um perhaps information flow because i assume you know if there was no impairment it would be easier to sort of speak with a healthcare provider and say these are my concerns and this is what i'm experiencing mm -hmm. but it, i think it's another layer of complexity a whole other layer and I'll, I'll give you a general example. I haven't worked in long-term care for years, but I imagine this is a scenario that they would come across. So let's say a resident has suffered a stroke and they've gone out to acute care and now they've come back and a nurse has gathered a report on this patient and she understands or he understands what's going on with this patient, but it's written in a chart locked in a nursing station and it's, not, or it's put on a computer and that, and maybe an unregulated healthcare professional who's providing 80 to 90% of direct care either didn't come into contact with that nurse or <clears throat> didn't have access to that computer or didn't have access to that chart or even didn't have time 
to read that chart, to sit down because their days are so busy and so overwhelming that some piece of information got missed. For example, maybe the PSW gave that patient who just suffered a stroke a drink of water. And that patient is not to have anything by mouth or even to only have thickened liquids by mouth. So that patient could suffer a pneumonia, that patient honestly could suffer pneumonia and end up dying as a consequence of that gap in information flow. So those little, those little pieces are really important. And when a patient has cognitive impairment, they are unreliable for those little pieces, unfortunately. Especially during COVID, what's been really difficult is that these family members aren't present at the bedside. Mm -hmm. And those family members often know everything about the patient and they're a great resource for care. And I often tell them like, you guys are a part of our healthcare team and we want you here and we want you to be knowledgeable. And through COVID, they haven't been here. And I think that's an extra challenge on information flow through COVID is that family used to be that safety net. I, and they're just not there anymore. I didn't, I didn't realize how important family could be when it comes to being a valuable resource in, this, in, in these situations. Um, could you tell us more about uh, why it is the case that long-term care is somehow different from other uh, sectors of healthcare? healthcare? So we purchase our, our technologies privately. Our healthcare is publicly funded, privately delivered, and covered under the Canada Health Act, except for long-term care. So there's different levels of funding, uh, different priorities going on there and that's why they're slow to adopt that technology um like i said we're all publicly funded but we receive a canada health transfer for our hospital care and some of our i believe some of our home care as well is covered under the uh, the canada health act but long-term care isn't and they're receiving different levels of funding different priorities different people running the show they're not adopting technology at the same level and they're experiencing challenges that we're not necessarily experiencing as much in acute care. I mean, as a nurse, I have access to my chart right in front of me on wheels when I'm working on shift. Yeah. Um, well, speaking about you being a nurse, so you're, you're a registered nurse uh, and you've worked clinically as well as, as in, with uh, the Neurological Rehabilitation Program. Tell us more about this program and what kind of works you did as a nurse. So I'm just a regular floor nurse and I float across the entire neurological rehab program. And I trained initially as a student. I felt really lucky to be on the stroke rehab program. Fantastic program to work with because these stroke patients come in and uh, you can describe it as like, neuroplasticity and you see their brain changing and their body functions starting to improve, improve and it's it's phenomenal and I also work across spinal cord injury uh, acquired brain injury which is particularly challenging and our neuro uh, behavioral rehab center which is like this it's this house and it has five bedrooms in it and they're all single rooms it has like a pool table and and a hockey table and just all these things to keep these brain injured patients busy and occupied and time to heal their brain. And that, that unit's really interesting because it only has one nurse on at a time. And then you work with rehab therapists and you're really, really that medical person on the team 
in in that house and it's really really quite cool i'm really curious i want to pick up on this uh house that you're describing because it seems to me like in a home-like setting uh people feel like they're probably i would imagine feel less like they're in an institution and and less yeah. sort of bureaucratic and do you think you know we we know and you talked a little bit about long-term care and covid do you think if there were smaller sort of house-like structures it would be easier for people to to a receive the care they need because there were the smaller units but also b would it be do you think better from an infection control perspective um it's hard to staff places like that. I mean, the benefits of having a bigger place is there's more staff to, to float through, um, more like people want to take vacation and stuff. And it's easier to get doctors in staffing, like a doctor will cover a floor of like 50 people. So it's easier to staff um, if it's a bigger facility. But that small house is specifically for brain injured people who really, really benefit from quiet, quiet environments. And we see similar things in long-term care. Um, my cousin is the administrator of a long-term care home in Sudbury, and they have rooms like laundry rooms, fake laundry rooms, fake nurseries for these Alzheimer's patients who go in and that's their, their relaxing, quiet environment. So everybody benefits from like a quiet environment um, when they have some sort of issue going on with their brain, but I'm not sure that like smaller facilities is feasible just with staffing and logistics. So Kendra, how has, I mean, your experience as a nurse impacted, well, impacted you as a person? What have you learned? I have just learned to have a good day every day because I work on a unit where we see a lot of injuries, a lot of random accidents. I mean, it's just like, take the, if an opportunity is there, like, you just take it and you, if you see something like when I see stuff going on in long-term care, and now that I've graduated from an unregulated professional to a, to a regulated professional, now to someone who's going on to get my master's and my graduate studies, like I'm in this position to make a change. And back then Great. I wasn't, I was just an unregulated professional. I felt voiceless, right? And and, and so now I'm like, I'm really excited. I think being a nurse, like I have a voice, I have some clinical credibility there. Awesome. So you have a, you have a strong voice now. That's pretty cool. And in your current research, um, what, what is the, the latest uh, that stuff that you're working on? So right, my ethics propose or my ethics just went through oh, good. so I've been approved and I can start uh I don't think I'm gonna start till after Christmas but right now I'm working on a scoping <laughs> review which is a form of um literature synthesis and that's just kind of like a literature review getting a, a good foundation on on what's going on health information exchange practices and long-term care even though I've experienced it myself as a as a unregulated healthcare provider I'm starting to get a sense more about what's going on across Canada. Nothing's really surprising. I mean, we're, we're in a fragmented system of like facts, telephone, hallway conversations, electronic documentation, paper charts that are for nurses, paper charts that are for doctors communication only, paper charts that are for PSWs only. It's, yeah, nothing's too surprising, but it's good to just go over. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it certainly is the right you know the the right time given what's happening. Um, what you mentioned change. What kind of change do you hope your research might bring about? Well. I'm hoping to build a body of research like so this scoping review and then my thesis and then potential PhD um, on on fragmented information flow in long term care and I hope that this can inform public policy uh, driving technology innovations I mean we need grants and funding for technology innovation within long term care. And what I would really like to see in the course of my career is long-term care come under the Canada Health Act, because it, it really should be. It just is a default of the timing of when long-term care kind of came about. The Canada Health Act had already been established and it just never got enveloped in there. What do you think would need to be done for that to happen for uh, long-term care to be part of Canada Health Care Act? Uh, some what kind of advocacy efforts would be needed? Um, a massive national push because Canada Health Act is nationally, right? We divide our public funding nationally by province based on some algorithm. And so if we put long-term care in there, which used to be funded by the provinces and the territories, it's just a little less money to be divided up, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So it would have to be a national approach and that's particularly difficult. I mean, we've seen that with a uh, national pharmacare, that's also a difficult approach that's been reapproached like from the eighties to the nineties over and over again. It's just hard to get us all on one page. Uh, sorry that I interrupt. I would like, I would like to ask, uh, um, when you talk about technologies that should be implemented to solve this uh, information issue, what do you imagine that could work? Because uh, I like I don't know how the nurses or everyone is going to be well connected. Like, do you expect to have an app, for example, or or wh what sort of of technology would it be? That's a really good question because the technology that I'm like mostly talking about is electronic health records and electronic health records store patient information in one spot. But the thing is, because our hospital organizations are pu uh, publicly funded, but privately delivered, they have like their own board of directors. They're purchasing this technology privately. And so we all have different technologies. For example, I work on Cerner, but there's also like Epic and Meditech and so now we're talking about interoperability, which is that concept of technology communicating data meaningfully to one another. And communicating data meaningfully to one another is even more complicated by privacy and confidentiality laws that regulate healthcare records. So you can see it's, it's one thing to establish the technology to store information on electronic health record. And now it's a whole other step to ensure interoperability in between these records, making sure the data is communicated meaningfully and there's semantic and syntactic interoperability. And that's talking about like whether or not data coding is lining up and whether or not healthcare professionals are even using the same words and terminology. Cause I don't know if if anyone's ever been 
in a hospital. I mean, we're talking our own lingo, depending on the floor that you're on. We're speaking an entirely, entirely different language. So, so Kendra, I was just wondering, um, how does it feel as a health profession when you see really bad information on the internet? For example, COVID-19 disinformation that's prevalent across um, well, everyone, uh, how do you in, how do you react to that? Especially someone who, who, for whom care is of greatest importance. Mm-hmm. It, it can be difficult, but I mean, just trying to stay educated myself, and and trying not to spread any disinformation. If someone's telling me disinformation, just re-educating them and being firm in my stance. Not everyone is going to believe you. There's lots of media driven fear and controversies. And sometimes you're never going to change everybody's mind, but especially on the floor, like I can really control our infection control policies. I mean, we're watching visitors very, very closely. And let's say like, even if they don't believe in what we believe in, like if they're coming into the hospital, we're really making sure that they're following all of these controls because we really want visitors in the hospital and we want to keep them there and we want to keep them COVID free. Oh, thank you. Have, um, you mentioned, you know, visitors in the hospital and earlier you talked about how important family members are in the caregiving team. How have you seen that impacted by visiting restrictions? I know that right now there's a bill being passed, uh, not just a visitor. Um, and how have you kind of seen that unfolding in healthcare? It's taken a psychological toll on on my patients, on myself. I mean, family is part of the healthcare team and, and we really rely on them. And we are sending these, especially in rehab, we are sending these patients home to family and we need them to be informed. We need them to be involved. Um, just even psychological therapeutic support for our patients. Like I have seen people have, strokes, have spinal cord injuries, have brain injuries, and come into the hospital in COVID and not have given their family members a hug until the day that they leave. And it's, it blows your mind, right? It, it, it's hard to wrap your head around. Uh, it's hard to go through. Um, the nurses and everyone else on the floor are trying so hard to be that therapeutic support for our patients, but we just aren't the same, especially the same as family. And we've really become quite, quite close throughout this, especially with our patients. I spend a lot of time, my downtime at work, what little of it I have socializing with my patients, trying to provide a really therapeutic presence. And we've also seen a lot of therapeutic recreation increase in the hospital, getting these patients outside. I mean, who's going to take the patients outside if the family isn't around, like who thought of that, right? So the nurses were doing it and the nurses were getting so tired. And so finally we've got more and more therapeutic rec and everybody's getting outside. People are bowling, people are doing fun things, but it's still not the same as, as having your family around. Have you, have you had any personal uh, experience, uh, some, some personal examples that, you, that really moved you uh, when it come, came to this issue? Yeah, I mean, uh, early on in COVID, uh, my grandmother passed away very early on in, in COVID in, in uh, April, 
she passed away or May 9th, actually, she passed away. And, and that gave me so much perspective talking. Once I started talking more to family members on the phone, like gave me, it really grounded me to empathize with these people. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that example. I think family struggles, they feel like sometimes we don't think that we understand what they're going through, but mm. a lot of the healthcare professionals are going through it too. And, and some of the best times have been like when we had someone in the hospital for six months, they were really young and we sent them out on their own. And like, we did a whole parade and big hug for mom and dad, like, wow. oh, fantastic. Right. Like that's why you show up to work every day is for those moments. So it sounds like you've got a really incredible blend of clinician and researcher and family member advocate. What's, um, what's next? It sounds like ethics is certainly uh, down the pipe. What's next? Uh, so I'm hoping to start getting interviewing long-term care clinicians on health information exchange and getting their perspective so I can get my thesis rolling, get publications out on the issue and get to the conferences, get talking about the issue, uh, just building a work around long-term care. So we're towards the end of this um, episode with you and it's been super awesome to have you here, Kendra. Um, would you like to share uh, any social media outlet that you might have that might be uh, helpful for this episode? Yeah, so I think the best social media you could actually find me on is probably LinkedIn. You can just look up my name, Kendra Cotton, and you'll see uh, you'll see me there. I think I'm with St. Joseph's Healthcare Organization and Western University, and there's a photo of me. I look just like this. So awesome. So um, well, thank you for being on the show. It was fantastic. Yeah, this, thanks for having me. <laughs> great. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western. I've been your host, Yusuf, and my co-host was Elizabeth Muller. We've been speaking with Kendra Cotton, and this episode was produced by Laura Viana. Uh, thank you very much. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on the radio at Western Radio 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on the website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts that have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, I'll see you next week. Bye.